0: There's an obligation for men over the age of 13 to review the weekly Torah reading. Usually that means reading the verses twice, and adding to that the Aramaic translation by Ankelas found in most Chumashim, and Rashi as well, explaining the verses. Some people do it all at the last minute, they do it Shabbos morning, some people do it Friday afternoon. Some people, like me, do it uh, by breaking up the weekly reading into the seven aliyahs that it is already broken up into in most chumashim, and doing one aliyah a day. Depending upon the parsha, sometimes it's a double parsha, and how much time you can put into it per day, there's usually enough time to get a decent overview of the parsha and maybe think about some questions to ask at the Shabbos table. The one exception, perhaps, is the Parsha you want to be able to spend time on. And that's Parsha's Barashis. And the reason why is because we end the Torah, Zos HaBrocha on Simcha's Torah, and begin Barashis that week, and the Shabbos following is the actual Shabbos we read it. And sometimes Simcha's Torah falls on a Thursday, late in the week, not giving you much time to review the Parsha in advance of Shabbos itself. It can be quite frustrating if you're somebody who wants to understand what's going on in the Parsha and you want to have deep insights into the Torah and creation itself and history and, of course, one of the most important events of all time, the chet of the Eitzhah Das the sin of eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which, by the way, is one of the most Kabbalistic matters there are to learn. So year after year... I would suffer the same frustration of having to race through the Parsha, knowing there's so much here to to look at and to learn and to understand and to connect to, but not having the time to do it. So that inspired a book called Barashis, A Beginning with No End. A play in the title, Barashis, the beginning, right? And it's a beginning, but it has no end, meaning that it's so deep. The entire Torah, of course, is that way, every Parsha. Even the most mundane or seemingly mundane matters can be discussed on very, very deep levels. We have this concept of pardes, also discussed inside the book, which stands for pshat, remesh, drush, and sod, which is a simple explanation of a verse or the deep understanding based upon hints in the verses themselves. Or there's drush, which means exegesis, which is the idea of medrash and, and deep explanations that you can't always see from the surface, looking at the verse themselves, but might be part of a tradition going back to Mount Sinai itself, and of course the final level, which is Sud, which is Kabbalah. One look at the Zohar on the Parsha, and the Arizal as well, and other commentators over the thousands of years the Torah has been in under possession, and you can see that everything is, is deep and profound and insightful. It is the Word of God. So, therefore, by definition, it has to be profound. So, by deciding to write a book about a Bereshis, that gave me the opportunity to spend more time in the Parsha, even though we read it the previous Shabbos or two Shabbos ago or three Shabbos ago, depending upon how long it would actually take me to write the book. Not only did I thoroughly enjoy working on the project, but I actually used for the cover a watercolor painting of Moshe Rabbeinu receiving the Torah from Shemayim, that I had personally painted years previously. I was looking for some place to use this painting somewhere, and this book afforded me the opportunity. In the end, because so many fundamentals are found in the very first Parsha, the book really goes all over the place, discussing all kinds of important matters that affect us not only historically, but in everyday life. It remains to be one of my favorite books that I've ever written. The book that followed was a very short book called Hanukkah and the Wonderful World of 36. I had been very fortunate to work together with somebody who had spent a lot of time developing classes and eventually writing a book on the topic of Hanukkah. He had marshaled so many sources, especially Midrashim, things I had never seen and perhaps would not have seen for years to come. And I was so amazed and blown away by the topic that it literally changed my life. And Hanukkah became a main theme for me from that point onward, and in particular those Madrashi. But more importantly, the number 36 that comes up often in his material came up often in my life and in other material I myself had found over the years especially as I began to look more into Kabbalistic sources. In the end, as much as he'd emphasized the importance of the number 36, I had decided specifically to focus on the importance of this number and what it means to history, everyday life, the holiday of Chanukah, and of course, the final redemption. It was just amazing how a holiday that's so rabbinical in nature, that seemed to be so light in mitzvahs and laws, And, you know, it's fun. Everybody enjoys it. Lighting the menorah, eating the latkes, of course. But, you know, Purim also is rabbinical in nature. But nonetheless, it has all these halachas. We read the Megillah. We have to have a suda. We give matanas of yonim. We have mashlach So many halachas and mitzvahs to do with the day itself, that Purim is important in the eyes of most of those people who keep it. But Hanukkah... As much as people enjoy the eight days of the holiday, most people have no idea just how profound and biblical in nature the holiday actually is. So the point of this book was to show how the theme of Hanukkah is really the undercurrent to all of history and personal development. It's the light of Yemotza Mashiach, the Messianic era, and understanding the role of 36 in everyday life means accessing the hidden light of creation that's the basis of Hanukkah and all the miracles associated with Hanukkah and life in general. And even after finishing this book, I was not finished with the number 36, just the opposite. It would continue to show up in my writings and in everyday life. One of the things that amazes me about Torah is how a single idea can give rise to an entire book or series of books. A classic case in point is a statement made in the Talmud, in Megillah, about what happens to Purim in a Jewish leap year, an extra Adar. What do you do? Do you celebrate Purim in the first Adar because it is the first opportunity to do so? And there's a concept in Judaism, you don't pass over the opportunity to perform a mitzvah because you never know what the future holds. Or you celebrate Purim in the second Adar, close to Pesach, because Purim usually comes in the month before Pesach. So most people might have thought the first case, because you don't pass up a mitzvah. But the Gemara says, no. You put Purim in the second month. You celebrate Purim in the month the other Sheini, the one closest to Nisan. Why? M'samech ge'ula le'ge'ula. There's this interesting concept of keeping redemptions close to each other. We want to keep the redemption of Purim, from Mordechai and Esther's time, close to the redemption of Egypt in Moshe Rabbeinu's time. A nice idea, but why? What's the basis for that? Especially when you can celebrate Purim in the first Adar and complete the mitzvah as soon as you possibly can. So this idea gave rise to a whole book called Redemption to Redemption, the very deep and intricate connection between the holidays of Purim and Pesach. Because obviously, when the rabbis told us to put both redemptions close together, it's because they're connected, not just in time not just in the Jewish year, but conceptually. In fact, we need Purim as part of the preparation for Pesach, because Pesach is about a lot more than eating matzah and maror and reading the Haggadah and having great family get-togethers. Pesach is mancheruseinu, the time of our freedom, the opportunity to go beyond our daily limitations spiritually, and become greater people. It's, it's a time for personal cheyus. So many people go through Pesach unchanged, except perhaps in terms of their weight, because of all the matzah and the chocolates and things that they've eaten during the course of the seven days, eight days, of course, in the diaspora. And the preparation is about a lot more than simply reading your premises of chumetz. But since most people don't know this or don't care enough to prepare themselves on such a high level, Pesach is an opportunity that for most people comes and goes and is not used nearly in the way it was meant to be used by God as prescribed by the Torah. So historically, we required Purim as part of the preparation for Pesach itself. And if a person understands what Purim is about and how to use it properly, then they can prepare themselves for the chayus for the personal freedom that Pesach is designed to allow us to achieve